You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 17 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Estate planning involving superannuation became even more complex in 2017, and the main culprit for that is the transfer balance cap. Being limited to this cap has added another dimension to it all. I'm talking to Chloe Ward of Intello on the Gold Coast. I asked Chloe what issues the super reform has brought into estate planning. Here's Chloe's answer. Well, the estate planning issues that have been born about from the super reform is all stemmed around the transfer balance cap and account and the way in which death benefit payments are paid out. Now, primarily, we could move money from one spouse's account to the other via reversionary or binding death benefit nomination, whatever suited, and it didn't matter about the balance of what was in the spouse's or the deceased spouse's account. If it was obviously in pension phase at $5 million, it didn't matter. We could, we could move that straight over. The difference now is that we don't have that ability to put all those funds into pension, that we are limited to the 1.6. And it really does then play on, well, what do we want to have happen with the funds? Now, under the arrangement with a binding death benefit nomination, you have to transfer the funds from the deceased account into the beneficiary's account pretty much straight away or as soon as practicable, which generally means right away. But that triggers the transfer balance account debit and it goes against the surviving spouse's account straight away. There's there's no leeway in that. Now, if they've already got a pension account, well, then we've got issues because we're either going to have to move or fully commute that pension back of the surviving spouse back into accumulation. Anything over the 1.6 from the deceased spouse is going to have to be moved or cashed out of the superannuation world, which could be really detrimental to the overall estate plan for that couple. And we don't know what's happening outside of super all the time. And the clients don't always know what's happening outside of super. So putting in a binding death benefit nomination can actually restrict or restrict the time frame basically on on making decisions the benefit about having a reversionary pension is that on the passing of a member we actually have 12 months before that amount is attributed to the surviving spouse's transfer balance account so if they have a pension already and it is at 1.6 well then we have space and scope to to make better choices and put things in place to better move that money around in a more effective manner. It's also at that time of a person's life when they've lost a spouse, generally, in this case. You know, it's a highly emotional time too, and having to worry about extra paperwork and making big decisions about where these funds are going to go can be can be very cumbersome and and not a not a pleasant experience either. So under having a reversionary pension, you then have the freedoms to sort of 
so much relax, but, you know, not, not be so rushed to make the decisions about where those excess funds are going to go. And you can make better financial decisions for your clients or, or the trustees themselves can make better decisions for themselves where that money is going to go. So that's sort of been the change in how we look at uh, the difference between binding death benefit nominations and reversionary pensions. And for some people that haven't hit the 1.6, obviously this doesn't you know, really affect them. It is more about those ones that have already crystallised or capped at that 1.6 in making the best possible tax-effective decision for them. You mentioned the two alternatives of either having a reversionary pension or having a binding death benefit nomination. Correct. Those are the two options anybody has. There is a non-binding nomination that you can put in place, but as the name of it says, it is non-binding, so your legal person representative or the trustee can override that. It's pretty much just a letter of wishes and is not the trustee is not bound to follow those instructions. So we don't actually see a hell of a lot of those happen. Anyone who's got a, a pretty well-structured estate plan tends not to have non-binding. In some cases, it can work but if, if they don't exactly know what's going to have happen. But we don't see a hell of a lot of them at all anymore. It's either binding death benefit nomination or a reversionary pension where a pension exists. And a binding or non-binding death benefit nomination would be a lump sum payout, so the, the entire balance is paid Correct. out, whereas the reversionary pension would mean... Yeah, essentially the pension just continues. So under the reversionary pension model, you know, we've got 12 months to move that pension into the name of the surviving spouse. And while that's happening within that 12-month period, that pension is still exempt current pension income generating as well. Whereas with a binding nomination, if we were to move the money straight over, you know, you probably wouldn't have that tax efficiency straight away or for a longer period of time, I say. So, yes, the reversionary pension essentially just is a is a way of continuing that pension. There's less paperwork involved. Life just continues as normal. That's that's how they were designed, is that they would just continue as normal. And what's the difference between a non-reversionary pension and a reversionary pension? Uh, non-reversionary just means it doesn't go anywhere. There's no, it doesn't automatically revert to a surviving spouse. In that case, you would have a binding death benefit nomination. You would want to have a nomination on file. Otherwise, again, it's, it's up to the trustee to make the decision. So we have, we have to have something on file, basically, is, is, the, is the prudent measure, is to have something on file that tells the trustee where those funds are going and in what manner. Whether that's a binding nomination or whether that's a reversionary pension, Either or will, will fit a circumstance if it's required. The reversionary pension basically um, is transferred as is? Correct, yes. And that, and that is traditionally how it's always gone. The added complication now is that we have to look at what are the values of those pension accounts and can we actually move that entire pension over to the surviving spouse or do we actually have to make some modifications to the accounts and move funds around? When we transfer the reversionary pension over to the surviving spouse, tax-free and taxable components are transferred in the same proportion? Yes, they're crystallized, so they, they move yeah. over. Correct. I see. I mean, it doesn't really matter because the pension is in retirement phase anyway. In retirement phase, but correct. Yeah, no, that they stay the same. So that means if the surviving spouse is already close to his or her transfer balance cap and then she receives this uh, either this reversionary pension or the uh, 
extra funds through the death benefit nomination, then it could tip him or her over the uh, over the cap. Correct. Yes, and then we have an issue of of making sure that that uh, that doesn't happen, and the the situation has to be rectified where the funds need to be either of the surviving spouse need to be pushed back into accumulation phase to allow for those that pension to to come into her account or his account, uh, or the money has to leave super depending upon the situation. deceased member had pension account and a, a smaller accumulation account so say they had 1.6 in pension and you know 400,000 in accumulation you could do the reversionary pension part for the 1.6 or a binding nomination in place the the accumulation part of that can't be a reversionary pension because it's not a pension account so that money would have to be moved out so the the, the 400,000 would have to be cashed out Correct. If somebody is still in accumulation phase and mm-hmm. passes away, how is that? That's as normal. We don't have we don't have reversionary clauses or anything for accumulation accounts. That either will fall under a binding death benefit nomination or a non-binding nomination um, to say where that where those funds are going to go. So, so the options for a um, surviving spouse would to would be if we've got a reversionary pension in place that you would take that 12 months time and your options would be either to move the surviving spouse's pension account balance and commute it back to accumulation phase. They could also take commutations or lump sums out of the pension account out uh, and take and reduce the account that way rather than just taking pension payments. Pension payments don't actually decrease the transfer balance account. So we would have to do them as partial commutations to be able to do that. And that would reduce it to allow for the funds from the deceased spouse to come in. or So they can either erode their account completely or they move it back into accumulation account, making accumulation phase making room for the pension to be applied against their name. Reversionary pension is only for another pension member or another member within that fund. A binding nomination can be to the other member or it can actually go out to dependents directly or it can be paid directly out to their personal estate, in which case then the will would take over. So under a reversionary pension model, obviously there's only one way that those funds can move and it's to revert to the spouse that's there. That's, that's still alive. Under a binding nomination or a nomination manner, then you can have it either stay in super or move out to dependents or move out to the estate. So there's a few different options under the nomination method. Children inherit their parents' pension cap, is that right? Correct, they do. We don't see a, a lot of child pensions, but there, there definitely are there are some around, and yes, they do inherit the, the parents' transfer balance account. There hasn't been a lot in play at the moment. Yeah, because it only came in from the 1st of July. Exactly, and it's, not... and it's not something that we usually see a hell of a lot of either. So Yeah, luckily, <laughs> luckily, luckily. Yeah, luckily, that, that is true. 
but yeah, the, there's a lot of criteria around, you know, receiving of the pension and how old the member was when they passed away. Did they have a transfer balance account? Was it a transition to retirement pension at the time of death? You know, is it treated as an actual retirement income stream? So there are a few things that come into play with the child. I see. Oh, okay, pensions. so with the child, it's actually quite it's quite complicated. It's not a pure it is, adding up. It is not a straightforward. No, child pensions are not straightforward at all. There is a lot of complexity to them. Oh, okay. Um, the so ATO we better put go out, there for now. Yeah, the ATO have put out some, you know, obviously companion guides around looking at child pensions and the transfer balance account. And there are some working examples on their website as well. We'll go through the legal database. But as we don't see a hell of a lot of them, we haven't. it hasn't been a main focus for us either. So in, in terms of writing any information or technical articles on it, it has probably been quite light on uh, because there's been bigger things at play. Trustees have always been one of those things that people have to you have you have to look at them. But but it's surprising how many people or advisors or accountants don't before they start making decisions. A simple thing of a binding death benefit nomination, whether it's lapsing or non-lapsing. So when these nominations first came into place, they had a three-year shelf life. That after three years, you'd have to revisit them, rewrite them, and put them in place. Now, most commonly, we see in the newer deeds that they're a non-lapsing, which means they stay in, in existence infinitum, which can be a good thing. I mean, in some cases, can be a bad thing in others if, if trustees or members forget to update them and something else has changed within their circumstances. So it's always prudent to review those nominations that are on file. Reversionary pensions are another thing as well. Generally, reversionary clauses can only be added to a pension account on their commencement rather than having a pension that's already in existence and then adding a reversionary clause to it. Nine times out of ten, we have to commute that pension back and restart it. Now, that can have Centrelink considerations as well, so we've got to be very mindful of that. And whether we can put in a reversionary clause once a pension is started does come down to the deed. Now, the deed must be specific on it. It can't be silent. If it's silent, we have to commute and recommence to put that clause in place. I haven't seen a lot of deeds that have had that clause allowed to be added in after, um, but I'm sure there are some deeds out there that would allow for it. Uh, moral of the story is always read the deed whenever we're doing any strategy, but especially around estate planning because you would hate to put something in place and then upon death find out that it's actually not valid. And if they are silent, then you can't set it up. You need to you need to update the deed and then commute the year. If the deed is silent on it, then you would commute and recommence and add in that clause if that's what you wanted to. If you wanted to have a deed that allowed for the clause to be added in, then yes, you would you would find that, that deed provider and upgrade your deed to allow for that. In nine out of ten cases among your clientele, the deed was silent and therefore you had to commute, commute and then recommence. Correct. Hmm. Correct. That That's what we see most of our deeds have, um, is that they are silent on that reversionary clause or they actually stipulate back to the legislation to say that a reversionary clause can only be added on the commencement of a pension. So 
So a little while ago when the super reform came into play, we looked at segregation of of accounts within one super fund and obviously above 1.6 we can no longer segregate for tax purposes. That born about the idea of creating two separate super funds and it caused a bit of ATO scrutiny. Up until uh, last week, we all thought that the ATO were going to be frowning upon a two super fund strategy, but they've actually come out now and said, well, we really don't have a massive problem with it at all, which is great. And the reason why we would have two super funds is that if we had members that had different assets or wanted different assets in a fund, so you might have a pension account that has a lot of income generating assets in it, and you want that income to be tax free you might then put over your higher growth assets that are maybe not ready to mature yet into an accumulation super fund and let them grow until such time as you would like to sell them. And this can be from an estate planning perspective as well, is that you might want to add in adult children at a later date and have them have those certain assets that you've segregated into into different super funds. So it's not a uh, tax avoidance scheme. By any means, we, we would never look at anything from a tax avoidance standpoint, but it can be from a simplicity standpoint of knowing what assets are generating tax and which ones aren't and keeping certain assets separate from each other. Do you have a client that has two SMSF funds? We do. We have uh, we have multiple clients that out of the superannuation reform, we decided that that was going to be of benefit for them. And as I said, not just from a tax perspective, but just keeping certain assets like lumpy assets like um, property uh, and things that were just growing rather than generating a high income. We've, we've moved over into a super fund that's just made up of accumula accumulation balances. And we then have other assets sitting in the pension account and, and vice versa. We might start an accumulation fund that has a major share portfolio, but because of the franking credits, it sort of offsets the tax. So we actually come out into a better better way, whereas if we had them in the in the pension account, we may not get the, the most benefit out of those. So there is, there is need. In some cases, it's not something that's been a blanket approach. It really is. It takes a lot of consideration and calculations to make sure that that's the right decision. Um, but we have had a few. So, yeah, and I know other practices have also looked at this as well. You mentioned segregation of assets before. There has been a change. Correct. So above the 1.6 million, we can no longer segregate assets for tax purposes. So previously, we were able to pull certain assets to different accounts. And, and essentially, that's what the two fund strategy is doing, is, is causing a segregation of assets just with two separate funds rather than within the one fund. So, yes, segregation was taken off the table. You can no longer segregate. Correct. So it's a pooled approach. So that's why we will be getting actuarial certificates to say what the tax-free percentage of that fund is each year. So it is a pooled approach now with all assets. But we just have to be mindful of costs, though, with, with separate super funds. And that's probably why it hasn't been a blanket approach either, is that you've got more ongoing costs with having two funds. So that has to be weighed up in the calculation to see whether this that strategy is actually of any benefit because you, you now have set up costs, you have ongoing administration costs as well, and, and potentially any uh, transfer costs. So estate planning post 
superannuation reform now means that we have to look deeper into the strategy of where we want those benefits to go and the timeframes that we would like to see happen. So whether that's using a binding death benefit nomination or a reversionary pension, uh, you need to be very clear on the outcome for your client at any given time and obviously checking the deed to make sure that happens. Specifically, be aware that a superannuation balance does not form part of the deceased estate and it will only form part of the deceased estate should you have a binding death benefit nomination that elects the state to receive those benefits. It's crucial that we have nominations or reversionary clauses on file, whatever best suits the client, but it is crucial that an estate plan encompasses not just outside of super but inside super as well. Welcome back. Read the deed. It seems to always come back to that. In the next episode, episode 18, Angelina Teresi of Family Law Practice in Sydney will talk about family law. Until then, Thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Yes, I've loved.